I'm your co-host Rebecca. And I'm your co-host Rach. And we have a special guest with us today, Allie. Hello. Hi, Allie. And welcome to another episode of Ember Island Sayers. This week we're going to be talking about Season 3, Episode 8, The Puppet Master. While camping in the woods at night, the gang meet an old innkeeper named Hama who offers them a place to stay. They soon learn that local villagers have been mysteriously vanishing during full moons. Creepy. (laughs) I love how, like, the last time I was on here, we also talked about a horror episode (laughs) with the swamp. Yes. (laughs) And here I am again with another spooky episode. Do we want to unpack that a little bit? Are you drawn towards spooky episodes, Allie? I am. I am what people of a certain aesthetic call a murderino. I love murder and dark things. It's it's terrible. <laughs> we, should, we should preface that with fictional yes. murder and dark things. <laughs> obviously, obviously. I love a good ghost story. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not a super horror person or murder person or anything like that, but uh, I did think this episode was very interesting, and I'm sure we'll get into why. But it's not usually my genre, really. Yeah, I'm more into, like, thriller stuff, but I also really like true crime, and I know Allie does too, so... We have uh, lots of different uh, opinions here on this podcast today. Um, And it's very nice to have you back, Allie, so thank you for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. We have a few things to do before we get into this episode. Uh, The first of them being Saka's Poetry Society, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. I have a poem for Saka's Poetry Society. It's a little bit dark, but so is this episode. So I felt like it was fitting. (laughs) All right, let's hear it. (laughs) Okay, here we go. I am Katara of the Southern Water Tribe. Waterbender, sister, daughter, friend... My heritage is one I would describe as closely tied to my ability to bend. I remember my mother in clouds of emotions. Our home was made up of love, warmth, and laughter. I knew that for us, our parents would move oceans, which I did, but not until long after. I mastered waterbending far too late. By then, the Fire Nation had chipped away at us piece by piece. Hama was the last to suffer the horrific fate that made her turn the blood on their hands into her weapon. I can feel her anger and resentment moving my body. It's my anger too, and I didn't want to let it consume me. But I have a family that I love, and this time is different. I'll fight through my tears to ensure their safety. I am Katara of the Southern Water Tribe. Waterbender, sister, friend, daughter, bloodbender. (laughs) Oh, my heart. (laughs) I know, it was kind of painful to write it. But uh, yeah, I tried to really get into Katara's feelings uh, during the writing of that poem. Yeah, I think you did a really good job. Thank you. Okay, I came up with a poem. Blood is red. Veins are blue. Don't get caught in the forest under a full moon (laughs) snaps yeah (laughs) so uh yeah this particular episode does start with ghost stories that is how we begin um Sokka is the first person who we see telling a story very loudly (laughs) with like singing involved and everything his story doesn't go down super well Nope. Everybody's kind of like, eh, that was alright, but I wasn't really that scared, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these kids have been through a lot, in fairness. I don't think much would scare them after what they've been through. So, they are listening to Sokka and uh, not super impressed, so Katara then says that she has a story. It's kind of a true story, and uh, it reminded me, weirdly, of this line that 
it's so strange, it just popped into my head that I believe, after doing some research, is from a cartoon called Freaky Stories that I think I watched, like, maybe one episode of, or not even that, when I was little, but this the beginning of this came into my head, which was, this is a true story, it happened to a friend of a friend of mine. <laughs> Yeah, and it adds that, like, personal element, right? When she says, no, it's true. Like, I knew the people this happened to. Yeah, she said it was about her mom. And I thought it was a sweet little detail that Aang kind of sat up after that and was very attentive and was like, oh, okay, this is important to Katara. I'm going to pay attention now. He gets his big eyes, like, when when he looks at Katara. You know how, like, they say, like, your pupil dilates when you look at something that you love? I feel like that was kind of, like, his moment where he's like, oh, she's about to tell me and share share with me something very important. And, like, he just, he gets those big eyes. It's so cute. And so much of this episode is about legacy, right? And about your history and um, what that means to you. And so it's kind of perfect that it starts with this story that is part of Katara's history, in a way. Yeah, yeah, I thought the same thing and how Katara has been shown to be a storyteller throughout the whole series. And, you know, it starts with her narrating the opening every time. And she was also the one to read the legend of Oma and Shu. And now she's telling this story. And I think that's really a beautiful aspect of her character and her heritage. And I think it's very purposeful for this episode in particular because of the ties to her culture. Oh, I love that. I hadn't thought about Katara as a storyteller, but she really is. She's She really is like the storyteller of Avatar The Last Airbender. Wow, more reasons to love Katara. (laughs) And she's very good at telling this story, too. I think she does a very good delivery of it and has everybody freaking out about it. Yes. (laughs) They're all very spooked by the end. Yeah, yeah. The story's not that important, I guess, but it's about a friend of her mother's who kind of became a ghost. And while she's telling this story, Toph hears something underneath the mountain that's nearby and freaks everyone out even more <laughs> including Katara <laughs> yeah yeah and I love that um Aang and Katara just kind of hold on to each other with like Momo in the middle because they're super scared yeah that was really adorable <laughs> yeah she just basically tells them that she can hear voices underneath the mountain but everyone else is like that doesn't make any sense yeah they should really learn to listen to Toph when she tells them these things but they chalk it up to the fact that she's really spooked out now and is just feeling things, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they get even more scared because a woman randomly appears in the middle of the woods where they're camping. Not just any woman, the creepiest old lady. She is very creepy. And this whole uh, episode is very... Um, horror movie inspired right we kind of set that up at the beginning and i think it holds through all the way and this is a horror movie trope right the creepy old lady who appears in the woods (laughs) just another day but she does seem kind of nice at first Mm -hmm. yeah she invites them back to her inn because you know they're four little kids in the forest all by themselves so (laughs) Right, right. And um, they go with her because clearly none of them have ever watched a horror movie. I guess they didn't learn about Stranger Danger either. (laughs) Well, like maybe Hansel and Gretel doesn't exist as a story. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely got those vibes. Mm hmm. It really does. Um, And she gets compared to a witch later on, right? Which is kind of another sort of thing that you get from this scene. But um, they go back to her inn. Everything seems relatively okay. Yeah, they just decide to sleep there for the night because, you know, it is nice to sleep in a bed, I feel like. (laughs) Probably, yeah, yeah. And we get to see, we only see where Sokka sleeps, which he has like a whole room to himself, it seems like, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and Momo stays with him, which I thought was cute. (laughs) 
That is really cute. I didn't think about that until I saw it in your notes. I was like, oh yeah, he does have Momo with him. <laughs> so either Momo followed him or Sokka was like, I called dibs on Momo. <laughs> yeah, he says that, like, I'll never get to sleep. So maybe he brought in Momo with him so that he didn't feel alone because he was still so creeped out. Aww. So, like, Momo was his protector, which I feel like if anything were to happen, Momo would be, like, the least resourceful <laughs> animal. Like, give me Appa. Like, I'll sleep outside on Appa. <laughs> I think it's just, like, a comforting thing. This scene is funny because I feel like it could have been kind of fan service because you've got Sokka, like, shirtless and stuff asleep. But then they also show him, like, drooling. <laughs> In this really disgusting way. I was just comparing it because we had that scene in the beach relatively recently that was kind of fan service-y with uh, Zuko. Yeah, ripping his robe off. Like, dramatic person that he is. <laughs> Super dramatic. So I, I was just kind of comparing the two in my head and I just thought it was funny that they uh, undercut that a little bit with his drooling. He, even though he says that he's not going to be able to get to sleep, he actually does get to sleep pretty quickly. Yes. One of those funny cuts that they always do where he's like, I'll never sleep. And then the very next scene, he's drooling on his pillow. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next morning, they wake up and they go shopping for some food. It seems like it's pretty early in the morning, too, because Sokka is unamused and he's normally very happy about going shopping. So <laughs> I didn't notice that. I can relate to Sokka in this as well. Don't want to be going too early in the morning. And Katara starts talking to the lady who they've met, who I guess we didn't actually say, but they have found out that her name is Hama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's buying... It looks like it's a bunch of ingredients to make food, and she's buying them from a shopkeeper who Katara's like, hey, I think that guy has a crush on you. <laughs> That was super sweet. I feel like that was like their first moment together where, you know, the Hama said, are you telling me that I should use my femininity to get a better price? If you are, then like, I, I we're getting along better than I, I thought we would or something like that. <laughs> it was just like their moment of like being buddies and, you know, having something in common. Just like little girl talk. Yeah, yeah. Definitely some bonding going on between them. Yeah, I did think it was funny, though, because Katara, the last time we saw her say that she was going to, like, use her feminine wiles, she basically just froze a couple of boys to the wall, so... Yeah, Katara really isn't much of a flirt. She, like, expresses her love for people through actions, so... But we do see, which I think is important, as you said, this bonding moment. And, um, you know, we do see a little bit later that Sokka is a little suspicious of Hama. And Katara pushes back against that because she really does feel close to her. And I think this idea of somebody who is similar to her, and she doesn't even know at this point, right, that she's a waterbender. But she already has that connection. Yeah, yeah. And she's not really concerned with the spirit world shenanigans as Sokka calls them. <laughs> they find out while they're in town that something has been taking people captive during the full moon and Sokka comes to the conclusion, hey, this must be spirit world stuff going on and Aang is very eager to start helping the people of the village. <laughs> Very cute little uh, Aang as a superhero moment, I think. His voice was also super deep this episode. I noticed it in that moment that his voice is dropping fast. <laughs> yeah, he's he's going through puberty, I guess. <laughs> well, his actor certainly did, right? There's one point where they're kind of chatting amongst themselves, and this is when kind of Sokka brings up that he's like, oh, I don't know, she's a little bit suspicious. Katara actually says that she reminds her of Grand Grand, which is an interesting comparison. Did you guys realize that when she said that Hama reminds her of Grand Grand, that she picks up the lettuce head and the lettuce looked like Grand Grand? No. <laughs> 
poor Grand Grand. <laughs> I know. Oh, we see young Grand Grand in this episode, and she looks so much like Katara. Mm, yeah, she does. So I guess it's another connection there that Katara has, right, with um, a member of her family. Yeah, she probably also really misses Grand Grand, too, because she's been away from her for a while. So just like this elderly lady (laughs) who's like very maternal and also seems to have a pretty good sense of humor from what we saw in the market. Like, those are all very Kana traits. So they decide to, I believe that they go back to the house while um, Hama is still shopping. Yes, and this is when Sokka really starts to show his skepticism because he starts snooping around the inn. (laughs) Yeah, and he's just kind of looking everywhere. Um, Katara is kind of not impressed by this. No, she and Aang are like, you need to stop, and Toph is just like egging him on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and then at one point when they find, uh, so Sokka finds, first he finds some puppets. Foreshadowing! (laughs) A little bit of foreshadowing there, yes, yes. Puppets are always creepy, and I don't know why. (laughs) Uh, Maybe it's, like, just something to do with, like, this humanoid. I mean, it doesn't always have to be humanoid. Like, I feel... The further removed it is from being a human, like, the more endearing. I'm just thinking of, like, Sesame Street or something like Mm. that, where it's, like, little monsters, and that's not creepy. But if it airs more on the human side, it's, like, there's something creepy about puppeteering, controlling something that looks like a human. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that makes sense. And that certainly ties into what happens in this episode yes. later. <laughs> so he finds the puppets, and then the next thing that he finds, which is kind of significant, is a locked door. Mm-hmm. And they peek through the lock and they see this little chest inside. And that's the one that Toph gets excited about maybe having <laughs> treasure. And uh, she ends up using one of the arm bracelets that they've been wearing, which I actually think are really cute, and I've been meaning to mention it for a while, but I think they look really nice. And she turns it into a key so that she can uh, open the chest. Yeah, I think that's her space rock thing that Sokka gave her. She, like, turned it into a bracelet. Yeah, it can morph into anything she wants it to. So she wears it on her sleeve. Oh, I thought it was just metal, because she's a metal bender, so I thought maybe that was what it was. But that makes sense, too. And that's funny, because Sokka uses his space sword to open the door in the first place. So, (laughs) apparently space rock's just really good at, like, opening things. Yeah, I feel like let's not ever leave Sokka and Toph alone. I feel like that's a bad idea. You're too dangerous. (laughs) That's a bad combination. I agree, I agree. There's no one to be, like, the voice of reason. <laughs> it just, like, keep escalating. Well, we almost had it last episode, but at least Aang was there as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think Aang is a little bit more willing to sort of break the rules sometimes, but they're definitely crossing a line here and, like, snooping around somebody's house. And I feel like Aang is very much a person who is respectful, especially of his elders so this was not cool in his books (laughs) yeah yeah that makes sense i think and what's in the chest doesn't turn out to be super exciting in itself to comb (laughs) but um this is when hama has come home and so she sees what they've done and the comb kind of has a bit more of a significance because it's the last thing that she kept from when she was part of dun 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 (laughs) the southern water tribe so she's actually part of katara and sokka's tribe which is really interesting um and the first person we've seen besides like you know bato i guess and uh and hakoda who are part of her tribe you know the way that she was written it's definitely easy to sympathize with her at first and feel her pain i think that they do a good job of showing her humanity and 
my heart really felt for her when you figure out, you know, her story and what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, likewise. And uh, she tells them that she is actually planning on making a kind of water tribe inspired dinner. She doesn't have the exact ingredients, but that's what she was trying to do. Which is very sweet, honestly. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Katara just feels very justified in how close she felt to her because she's like, oh, she's one of my people, you know? Yeah, she tells them that she's going to make this dinner. She does mention sea prunes, and that part was very funny. <laughs> uh, Aang is still disgusted by sea prunes all these episodes later. <laughs> I will say that, you know, looking at Hama's story and, you know, that she was captured from the her tribe and taken by the Fire Nation and, you know, being Grand Grand's age and, you know, just Sokka and Katara knowing, you know, they're losing their mother from the Fire Nation, they can really relate to what Hama has been through firsthand. I mean, Hama was, you know, stuck on that Fire Nation boat, and, you know, she lived being, like, in a prison and being the one captured where uh, Sokka and Katara felt firsthand the loss. So, you know, they see different perspectives of how the Fire Nation destroyed their tribe in many ways but they can relate on another level which I think is is really important and I feel like Katara can really relate to another female who has been through the destruction of the Fire Nation yeah yeah their trauma is very similar in a lot of ways and this flashback that we get to that trauma is extremely affecting, I think. And we get to see, you know, how, uh, kind of like I tried to say in my poem, how they picked off the waterbenders kind of like one by one. Right. Yeah, I think there's definitely another layer of sadness in the flashbacks because we get to see what the Southern Water Tribe was like before the raids. And I think I mentioned this briefly and one of the episodes where they were in the Northern Water Tribe, but they were a lot more built up than they they were when Aang first arrived there, and they were thriving and full of happy people, and they just dwindled in numbers, and their whole city and way of life got destroyed, which is really sad. And we kind of get to see how Hama was the last person left over after all the other so he she had to watch everyone else be taken and uh and she was the the last person left over and we have this sequence where uh we see her getting captured it's interesting actually that they talk about how they were capturing the waterbenders which is not what happened to katara's mother right she was killed uh so i wonder kind of why they decided to uh, change thing. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I wonder why they were just capturing them at first. Maybe Hama was the reason why they stopped capturing them. Oh, that's what I think. That's my theory. <laughs> because they couldn't risk another bloodbender. And I do think the reason why they didn't just outright kill them at the beginning was because they were sort of waiting for that affirmation if the avatar was among them uh, because they kill yeah they killed the airbenders first and then it they would have reincarnated the avatar into the cycle of waterbenders so i think they were seeing like are any of the prisoners we captured a waterbender or are we still looking for an airbender that we that somehow managed to evade us mm-hmm, sort of thing mm-hmm. so okay that makes sense i think it just made me think a lot about that scenario. And it's just, it's horrible. Like, it's straight up horrible <laughs> to think about what happened to them. It is. It's it's just horrific. And it's really hard to even imagine something like that, honestly. 
I guess we should say we didn't say she reveals herself to be a waterbender because she bends the soup into their bowls at dinner. And I think Katara is just so excited about this. Yeah. um, And she afterwards, she offers to teach Katara. And I just I got so emotional watching how excited Katara was to learn about her heritage because it kind of coincided with I just finished watching the show Watchmen which is amazing <laughs> and uh, a, like a big theme of that show is kind of learning who you are and also uh, generational trauma because the show deals with race in America and so you know uh, it is about this uh, leading character who is black and she doesn't know a lot about her family and she Um, comes to know more about her family over the course of the show. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's great. (laughs) I think it's super interesting to think about that for Katara too, in this trauma that has been passed down through generations, even though she wasn't alive when this happened. It's trauma that's still passed down to her, you know, genetically and also emotionally. And sort of this idea of learning your identity I just, I think it's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a lot of that at the the end of the episode as well. There's a lot of parallels in this flashback as well and some interesting callbacks. Like, at one point, the waterbenders freeze one of the Fire Nation ships, and that's actually the ship that Katara and Aang explored in the first episode. There's another part where it's when Hama gets captured and the framing of the scene is exactly the same as the scene where Aang gets captured in the first two episodes by Zuko and they sort of frame it where Katara takes the place of Kana where she's just crying because someone she really admired and loved is being taken away by the fire nation and just that parallel strikes me and it's honestly so upsetting (laughs) but the way it's framed is is really cool too because it also makes you think about Aang as a character and how the same things happened to him that happened to Hama and how different he and Hama take that trauma and use it in different ways yeah I saw that you posted a tumblr post that had the comparison of the scenes side by side and they really are very very similar to each other and it's interesting I actually just had this thought that um so Hama was we presume uh Kana's friend and we started this episode with uh Katara telling a story about her mother and her mother's friend female friend as well so kind of an interesting parallel as well I kind of love that they were friends I mean it's so sad but (laughs) uh, it's just another connection to Katara so yeah Katara as we said is super excited to learn waterbending from someone who you know is part of kind of the original culture I think of her tribe and uh, Hama takes her out and talks about how important it is to be creative with your waterbending. Yes. She teaches Katara how to pull water from the air, which is really a cool technique. (laughs) And she's right. Water is everywhere. Um, You know, on this planet, it's something that you can find in pretty much everything. So I feel like Katara is already pretty creative with her waterbending. (laughs) She's able to see some... Uh, different ways that she can use it as well. I will say that when they're walking through the fire lilies, which are beautiful, by the way, I wish I had fire lilies, Um, which also kind of reminded me of when Dorothy and her friends are walking through the poppies in the Wizard of Oz, just like a bunch of red flowers. I just want to run through them. Besides frolicking, what I wanted to say was that when Hama drew water from the fire lilies um, and like sliced that rock in half. And Katara was like, whoa, that was so cool. But 
you just killed all these lilies. They're, they're, they're dead. And, you know, Hama just didn't have empathy for killing something that was around her or taking life from, you know, nature, which I feel like was very interesting where Katara had that empathy. It was like, you know, Hey, like I'm not willing to, you know, murder these flowers <laughs> to slice a rock open. If I, if I need it, it's there, but I'm not about to just do it for fun. So she has a respect for nature, which I think is, is something that really shows something special about Katara. Mm. Yeah. I do think that was kind of a little bit of foreshadowing. Just like you said, it was really showing Hama's disregard for life in general. And yeah, I had written down that it did remind me of the the Field of Poppies and the Wizard of Oz. Um, and in that story, we get a wicked witch enchanting the poppies um, to make them kind of evil. So I feel like there's a little bit of a parallel there as well, because you have, here's a kind of witch, because she gets called a witch, also sort of doing something evil with the flowers, if that makes sense. <laughs> and it could be like the red... Is kind of like alluding to blood. Yeah, I thought of that too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, which also kind of reminds me of uh, the Sixth Sense. Um, I don't know if if you're familiar with the Sixth Sense, but basically, when every time something bad was going to happen, there would be something in the scene that was red. So yeah, there was a huge like color symbolism there, and I I feel like. That was that was kind of in here as well, which is interesting. And it's also um, kind of contrasted with that. There is a little moment that we get where Sokka is... Well, Sokka, Toph, and Aang are kind of nearby, just kind of hanging. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to figure out what's going on with this the spirit stuff going on. With <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's a really cute moment where Sokka is just sniffing flowers. And I kind of thought that was adorable, like contrasted with the fact that Hama just killed a bunch of them. <laughs> and this is when Toph starts accusing the moon of maybe being responsible for these people disappearing. And Sokka has a great response to this. He freaks out. <laughs> nice that Sokka still cares about Yue and uh and will not stand for slander it's really funny to me that Toph missed out on all the wacky things that went down in book one and so like whenever people say something about what went down then she's like what the heck are these what's wrong with these people And she like doesn't even bother to ask. She's just like, these people are freaking weird and I'm not even going to try to delve into what Sokka's deal with the moon is. We don't have time to unpack that right now. But yeah, so they're kind of on their own little side quest, I guess. And they end up, I think they ask like a random villager about the disappearances of people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he, he tells them that... Um, Old Man Ding knows what's going on, so they need to go find Old Man Ding. (laughs) Yep, Old Man Ding. So that's what they do. He tells them what happened to him. They're also very helpful uh, to Old Man Ding, actually. Yes, he's, like, trying to complete some kind of carpentry project to keep the creepies out of his house or something. And he can't really lift the boards, so Aang is quick to help him, and then Sokka starts nailing the board down for him. It's like, oh, polite kings, we love to see it. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) They may not have a brain cell between the two of them, but they are polite at least. I like, it's kind of like the humor that we talked about earlier with Sokka saying that he can't go to sleep. And old man Ding's like, why does everybody call me old man Ding? I'm not even that old. And then he can't lift up the little piece of wood. (laughs) It's cute. You need some of that humor to break up the seriousness and depth of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And it is, it is nice to get a little respite from that. But then he tells us something extremely creepy. Yeah, he was moving towards the mountain one night when the full moon was out and he had no control over his body. Mm, and, uh, and that sounds pretty messed up. And since I already knew about bloodbending, I was already like, huh, that sounds like bloodbending. Yep. Nailed it. But, uh, yeah, pretty creepy. And also ties into the, the puppets uh, that we had talked about before, this idea of, like, not being in control of your own body. He says he managed to get away, but I think he got lucky that basically the moon, uh, it was kind of close to uh, when the sun was coming up, right? Right, Yeah. But other people seem to have just vanished. And uh, we'll see where they are in a little bit. Yeah, I think that's another common horror trope of, like, the sun coming out and the monsters going away sort of thing. And I think it ties into a lot of people's fears about the dark. I myself definitely have a fear of the dark sometimes. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like when you can't see things and you know when things aren't transparent to you it makes everything a little bit more creepy but Toph does not have that problem she's like it's dark like whatever and then she realizes that the voices that she must have heard underneath the mountain were probably not in her head right they are actually people under a mountain <laughs> Mm-hmm. so they decide to rush to go and save these people and meanwhile Hama is taking Katara out um, on the full moon because she wants to she kind of promised that she would show her the ultimate waterbending technique under the full moon when they would be at their like maximum power and we see her as she goes out under the full moon and we get some like cool lighting. Um, I think they do, you're right, Ali, they do play a lot with color in this episode because in this part, you actually lose a lot of the color when Hama is under the moon. And then you get to see like her veins popping out of her arm, which is super creepy. Ugh, the sound effects in that part always creep me out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, did they really have to do that? Apparently they did. <laughs> and so while that's happening, Sokka and Toph and Aang go and rescue what turn out to be a bunch of people who are just imprisoned under the mountain. Yeah, and Aang is very confused because spirits don't really have prisons. They aren't really tied to the physical world. So why would they want to keep a bunch of villagers prisoner you know like when Heibai was taking people he was taking them to the spirit world so this doesn't make any sense for it to be a spirit and it's at this point that one of the prisoners says oh it wasn't a spirit it was a witch are you a good witch or a bad witch <laughs> <laughs> she's kind of neither yeah and we kind of go sort of back and forth between, you know, these villagers who are trapped. And then we find out from Hama a little bit more about her time in the Fire Nation prison, which, wow. <sighs> yeah, this is definitely, I think this is the darkest part of the whole show, to be honest. Oof, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't watched the whole show, but it's very dark. <laughs> so horrific, so demoralizing. And, you know, they actually show us what it was like in the prison and how they tied up the waterbenders' hands and feet before they gave them a drink of water. And they, she said they pumped in dry air so they couldn't take water from the air. And they kept them in, like, these suspended cages. And it's just, it, like, it makes my stomach sink to just think about it. And I think, you know, it does a good job of showing us how much um, resentment that Hama would have built up over those years. Because how could you not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important that the show acknowledges that you can be a victim and an abuser at the same time. And those aren't 
mutually exclusive things because that happens in real life. Some people can't break out of the cycle of abuse and it's really sad and it's really bleak, but that's what happens. And I think it would kind of be a disservice to the show if they just like, everybody has a redemption arc and it's all rainbows and holding hands and everything. Like you're not showing the real atrocities of what war does to people and I think they're not afraid to go there and I respect that yeah I I completely agree with you and I think that the show does a very good job in showing the progression of that you know you see her first she starts manipulating rats um and then you kind of see things well actually in the show in the chronology in the chronology of the show first we see her kill a bunch of flowers and then we see her manipulating rats and then we see her bloodbending with people later on so i think the show is um being very careful there to show us that it's not something that just like happens overnight that all of a sudden this lady turned evil right yeah you know, it's something that was really um, developed over decades, she says, that she was in that Fire Nation prison. Yeah, I see a huge correlation to Star Wars in this episode. And, you know, I won't I won't stay on my Star Wars soapbox for too long. But Hama really reminds me of Anakin, where you're, you're nailing it with that progression. And, you know, finally, when Anakin's mother is is killed is when he snaps and you know i she she snaps as a prisoner his mom was also a prisoner but also in star wars there's a light side and a dark side and when we were first talking about that with you know the koi fish um in ua's episode how there has to be a balance like the balance of the force in star wars there's also a balance in Avatar. And we were originally talking about how, you know, there's good and evil with, you know, waterbenders versus firebenders and how they're opposites. And, you know, fire firebenders are bad, but not all of them are bad. I feel like there's a balance within the tribes as well, where you can have a good waterbender like Katara, who is a child of war. Um, her mother was killed, but she is not seeking revenge. And she is trying to balance um, the good and, and, and bad by helping Aang uh, defeat the Fire Lord. And then on the other side, you have a bad waterbender who invented bloodbending. And she is the complete opposite of Katara. It's like a mirror image. So, you know, it's kind of like Star Wars where you you have to have a good Jedi and a Sith in order to keep the Force balance. It's very, very similar in that way to me. Okay, off soapbox. Yeah, and I also think it's important to recognize that there, there's good in, and bad in people as well. I can sympathize with Hama, and I can feel horrible pain for what she went through, and recognize why she did what she did and I don't even think she's a bad person at the end of the day I think her circumstances landed her in this bad position and the things she chose to do with her powers are bad but I still think there are parts of her that are good like wanting to share her heritage with Katara and it's hard to like demonize her and I don't think we should and obviously we shouldn't excuse what she does either but I do think it's important to recognize like there are also bad parts of Katara as well but she's kind of actively fighting to combat those things yeah that's how I always saw the um the koi fish and they are representative of the yin yang symbol right um And I think I've talked about it before, but the interesting thing about the yin-yang symbol is that there's a little bit of dark in the light and a little bit of light in the dark. And I think that that's always the balance. And I think, you know, uh, nothing is ever that straightforward. 
Um, and even, you know, if we do want to go back to Star Wars, Luke sees a little bit of light in Anakin. And that's kind of how he manages to bring Anakin back at the end, you know, even though Anakin has obviously gone down a very dark path. Vice versa, I think that there are some dark aspects to Luke as well. And I think here that's that's what we see. As you said, Katara has little bits of dark in her too, but she doesn't let those overwhelm her. And I think it's also um, Katara is young, which I think makes a big difference. You know, she's still got, uh, although she's been through a lot, obviously, even though she's young, she's still got a lot of time to mold herself. Whereas um, I think Hama has been molded by what has happened to her. That's a really good point, I think, because this also happened to her. It looked like she was almost like a teenager when she was captured. And like you said, she was in there for decades. And how do you come back from that? That's really hard. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's interesting that she never went back to the Water Tribe Mm. either. And I wonder, I mean, there's probably a combination of reasons for that, but I wonder if part of that was because she felt like she couldn't go back, that she wouldn't belong there anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can see that for sure. She's a changed person. So, yeah, she's, she's very interesting. I agree with uh, the points you guys are making, that she's a um, definitely a complicated character. <laughs> definitely a complex And, you know, they do make her look really scary in this part, Um, kind of going back to this idea of like a horror movie, um, they make her look like a witch, you know, like she's being described as. When Katara realizes what she's trying to teach her, Katara is very horrified at that, um, so she pushes back. And unfortunately, Sokka and Aang have come to, they want to, you know, help Katara because they figured out that Hama is probably not a great person to be around especially not under a full moon and so they've come to kind of try and help but they end up making things worse inadvertently yeah i didn't want to talk about a scene right before this where hama ends up using bloodbending on katara because it's at this point katara after she figures out like this is the method and Hama has been the one taking people underground she really like questions the ethics of bloodbending and I love that about her because she has a lot of care and for others and their agency and Hama's like well you shouldn't have turned against me before you learn the technique and she takes control of Katara but Katara is able to get that control back because she's more powerful than Hama and I think that there's a shot in this episode that I just love it's my favorite moment where they show the full moon and it fades onto Katara's face and she's gripping the grass and pulling water from the grass and she rises to her feet after this and it's almost like she is drawing strength from Yue which I think is really beautiful and I just love that scene so I wanted to talk about it for a hot second (laughs) no that's totally valid and uh sorry i think i skipped ahead a little bit there because i think (laughs) we also have uh the fight between them but even before ang and Sokka get there right um and that's a pretty amazing fight oh katara is amazing in this scene yeah it's it's just very cool because these are two master waterbenders and they've also pulled techniques from other bending styles. So, you know, waterbending is a lot about push and pull, but I think these two like ground themselves a lot like earthbenders and they also use a lot of slashing techniques as well, which isn't typical. And it's a very interesting fight. I really liked a small detail that I noticed was um, there are some moments in the fight when they are kind of flinging water at each other and it turns into little droplets. And if you look in the droplets, so if we're looking at like Katara's side, you can see the reflection of Katara's eye in the droplets. And then from the other side, we can also see the reflection of of Hama. And I just thought that was a really nice detail. Yeah, this episode was beautifully animated, honestly. (laughs) 
Yeah, and playing with that, as like I said, the lack of color in this scene, apart from, I guess you do get the blues of the water and that kind of stands out. But yes, then the uh, scene gets interrupted by Aang and Sokka showing up. This is bad. They shouldn't have done this. <laughs> no. They had no way of knowing, though. Hama starts controlling them both with bloodbending, and obviously they're not powerful enough, or I guess, well, Sokka can't do anything because he's not a bender, but it did make me think that, like, Katara could draw her strength from the moon and could do that because of her water bending. She could stand against Hama, and I guess it doesn't work like that with the Avatar. I guess since air is Aang's natural element, he couldn't do that. Yeah, they actually mentioned this on Avatar Wiki too, and they kind of came to the same conclusion that it's different if you're like just a waterbender. Yeah, so she basically makes. Aang, first she makes Aang and Sokka try to fight Katara and Katara manages to push them back. I love that she's yelling like as she's doing it. She's like, I'm sorry, Aang. I thought it was funny that she like froze Sokka to the tree and said nothing to him, but was apologizing to Aang. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fitting, honestly. And I also love that Aang, you just hear him very quietly in the background. <laughs> yes, okay. that was so cute. But so yeah, she does fine with that pretty much but then Hama does the one thing that would break Katara which is she turns Sokka and Aang against each other yeah this is just awful because ultimately she's forcing Katara to bloodbend against her will and I just think this is really atrocious in a lot of ways and it's where I lose a lot of sympathy for Hama because she's doing this to a child. Katara, you can just tell how Katara feels about this. She's sobbing about it and it just makes me really sad. <laughs> yeah, this part really got to me and had me crying as well <laughs> um, in that scene because of just, yeah, how sad Katara is. And I think that, you know, from Hama's perspective... Because uh, she ends up getting taken away by the villagers who've been captured by her. You know, they kind of chain her up. And she's seems to be happy that she's managed to pass on this legacy to Katara. And I can kind of understand that in the sense that, I guess, um, you know, she never had any children. She never had the chance to teach her waterbending to someone else, right? because she basically lived her whole life in the Fire Nation. And so I can kind of see her perspective in that sense, in that she is glad that someone will be continuing her legacy. Because I think ultimately that's what, for most people, that's what they want, is to leave some kind of legacy in the world. You know, whether that's through children or, you know, your actions or what you do. You know, that's what she managed to do. But Katara is obviously um, in so much pain because of this. And it was something that was forced on her. It wasn't something that she did willingly, um, which uh, is awful. Yeah, and she has to bloodbend, like, a member of her own tribe as well, which I think just adds to the trauma because she's ultimately helping these people put Hama in a prison again and that can't feel good even if what Hama is doing like the justice that she deserves maybe it is being locked up again but like I don't know it's just it's hard <laughs> for Katara and I think that would be hard for anybody and there's definitely a lot of layers to it as well yeah I agree with everything that you guys are saying but I mean the thing that gives me chills is the satisfaction that Hama has at the end like she's like I got what I wanted I created another bloodbender and ugh, it's just like gives you the chills it's just it's so evil um to do that to someone so young I think it's an interesting way of addressing this transgenerational trauma that we talked about and how 
Hama's quest for vengeance is just perpetuating the cycle of violence because she's like trying to get Katara to feel what she felt in a way and that's just really messed up because she went against Katara's consent and that is like the very scary part for me because Katara very clearly said no and Hama was like well too bad (laughs) you're gonna do this anyway and that's the part for me that's just really awful and that's the whole concept of bloodbending too right is it's doing something against your will so it all kind of ties in thematically making someone else your puppet right yeah it's uh it's devastating i think for katara but you can see where it comes from for hama and that's the end of the episode (laughs) yikes Should we end on a on a higher note? <laughs> Do you have a higher note for us to end on? Uh, I can recite my poem again. <laughs> Not to go back to, you know, the darkness, but <laughs> like on a more serious note, part of the reason why I think Hama is this way is because the Fire Nation isolated her and they took her away from her community and she didn't have anybody putting her on a different path like one of the great things about what Katara has going is she has these friends and she takes advice from them and she wants to do good by them and Hama doesn't have that and she hasn't had that for a really long time so I don't think it's in her true nature to be this sort of person but she was kind of forced to have this attitude about self-preservation and that's not a Southern water tribe thing at all, but she had to get to that point because she had to survive. She was just out for her own survival. Sorry to bring it back to that darkness. but (laughs) No, you're right. I mean, even as an old woman, she is isolated. You know, she doesn't own an inn, but you know, we didn't even see any other guests in the inn. It was just the kids. And I feel like, you know, she she finally feels a connection through Katara. But instead of, you know, she wants to share what she knows with her. But I don't think she understands that what she's doing is super wrong. Like, she feels like that it's it's okay what she's doing. Like, she feels that, you know she has a good reason for what she's doing and it's not right but anyway yeah you're you're totally right and that's kind of what the systems of oppression do right is that they isolate people because if you isolate people then they're weaker right than if they're if they're together so should we pick an mvp for this episode all right i mean I know who mine is. It's Katara. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it has to be Katara, right? Even though she obviously did something she didn't want to do at the end. But that wasn't her fault. No, and she saved Sokka and Aang because of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and just her creativity, her strength. Um, she shows so much strength in that scene when she's fighting against Hama. Pulling her own power from, from Yue, as you said. This is when Ali is going to be like, I vote for old man Ding. You know, I usually am the outlier when it comes to the MVP. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I have to sympathize with Katara and agree that, you know, she was very courageous to not just follow what Hama was, was teaching her, but to stand up for what she believes in. I mean, like, even with the flowers, like, hey... Like, you just kill all these flowers. <laughs> just speaking up and, and saying, hey, like, I don't necessarily agree with this. I love that Katara always has a voice and always stands up for what she believes in and, and questions things. She doesn't just follow along. So I feel like, you know, that's she she stayed true to herself even at the end, um, even when she was forced to bloodbend. Yeah, that's another good point, too, is- She's so young, but she knows where she stands on so many of these issues. And 
I think she has a really wonderful sense of self and that's something that I really admire about her. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so next up we have our playlist. Mine's dark. <laughs> Mine's also pretty dark. So mine is uh, Mad Woman by Taylor Swift is what I picked. And it's representative, I feel, of Hummer. Some of these lyrics are not, I will say, uh, not to call out Taylor Swift, but... <laughs> So many of her songs are about, like, love in the romantic sense. It would be nice if they were a little bit more focused on other things. Some of these lyrics really reminded me of Hama. Um, So it begins saying, you know, what did you think I'd say to that? Does a scorpion sting when fighting back? They strike to kill and you know I will. So that reminded me of kind of Hama's uh, resentment towards the Fire Nation and her building desire to strike back at them then the kind of leading into the chorus we get every time you call me crazy i get more crazy what about that and when you say i seem angry i get more angry and there's nothing like a mad woman what a shame she went mad no one likes a mad woman you made her like that and you'll poke that bear till her claws come out and find something to wrap your noose around and there's nothing like a mad woman this really reminded me of Hama and how she, as we talked about in this episode, she didn't start out being this way, but she became this way over time. And uh, there are reasons for that, which I think are very clear in this episode. Um, and it also kind of gets into this idea of a witch and how does a witch come to be? And uh, and I think that's that's really what you see with Hama too. Mm, yeah. Mine is also about Hama. <laughs> yeah, I picked Bones of a Rabbit by Young Heretics. And I just thought this fit her really well. It's a song written about someone who was abused and kind of their take on everything that went down. Um, but I thought it was also applicable to what happened to her at the hands of the Fire Nation. So the lyrics go, I've deceived the lonely and in the dark I've grown. I now clench the fists of hands to limbs that aren't my own. And another part that I thought fit well was, you have conquered cities and torched the mighty sea. You may keep yourself afloat, but you cannot outswim me like the metaphor with the water as well was very fitting with her and the chorus I don't think is as applicable but I think if you look at it kind of from a metaphorical stance um, it goes you play with the wolves but you sleep with the bones of the rabbit I was only a child it makes no sense the fire nation are kind of like this this wolf going after a small rabbit and it's like why would you do this to me and why would you hurt somebody that really has no line of defense and taking away I mean here I go again I keep analyzing the episode but <laughs> I mean that's a huge part of it I feel like she had this loss of control for such a big part of her life and her taking back this control her agency by doing that to other people I think is really cathartic in a way and like again not to excuse her actions but I get why she would choose to control people in this way because she never had that control when she was imprisoned so that's my pick <laughs> There is that saying, um, hurt people hurt people, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good point about her lack of control leading to her wanting to control things. <laughs> what are you going with, Ali? So, I am going with the song Us and Them, which is by Pink Floyd and on the Dark Side of the Moon album. Dark Side of the Moon 
can be played while watching The Wizard of Oz and the lyrics match up. So here we go, full circle with Wizard of Oz and the Red Poppies. So when you play this song, when you play the, the album with The Wizard of Oz, the song Us and Them actually matches with the, the shots between the witch and Dorothy. So us is Dorothy and them is the witch. So in this scene, it, it kind of reminds me of Katara versus Hama. So that is going to be my pick. That brings us to the conclusion of the Puppet Master. What are we in for next week? Okay, so next week, I've told you this many times, but this is pretty much Avatar on drugs. We have Nightmares and Daydreams, which is really like the penultimate episode leading up to the Day of Black Sun. So they're kind of having to reconcile with the fact that, hey, this day is really coming. (laughs) We can't just like go to villages and do dumb stuff anymore. Aang is having anxiety, haha. So I can really relate to him in this episode because I struggle a lot with anxiety as well. But it's really showing his struggles and the things that he's worried about. And it's basically like his sleep-deprived nightmares and daydreams. So you have that to look forward to. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, until then, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Ali. Oh, thank you. Blame me, Hotman. Every season you've been a guest on this show. Um, you are a, are a constant. <laughs> Until next time, if you want to find us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Ember Sayers, where uh, I usually post the MVP uh, and other fun stuff uh, that you can find on there. You can also find us on Tumblr, by the way. Um, We don't always mention that, but we're on Tumblr too. Um, Our Twitter is at Ember Sayers. Our Tumblr is emberislandsayers.tumblr.com. We also have an email, emberislandsayers at gmail.com, if you want to send us anything more long-form reviews, comments, suggestions, and we will gladly read those out on the podcast unless you don't want us to. We are available on multiple platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts, Um, and if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, or even if you don't, we would really appreciate a rating and a review. Five stars would be amazing, um, and it really just helps other people find the podcast. So until next time, uh, I will tell you guys to stay flaming. Stay flaming, everybody. Flamio Hotman. Hotman, Hotman. This episode has everything. Ghost stories. A creepy old woman with a comb fire lilies, and human puppets. What exactly is a human puppet? It's when the Crypt Keeper channels Sokka's ex-girlfriend to Vader choke your entire body with just your blood.